What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, those who are out there building, deploying, minting, creating social experiments for Bitcoin and for crypto, creating a relationship between the world that we lived before and the world that we're living now and, and the world that we're going to be living. Um, if we can go back and, and equate this podcast to uh, imagine if you were listening to the early 90s or ni it's 1998 and, and Microsoft is just launching ASP.NET as our last guest just talked to us about. And there's very few operating systems and no one in, in the the, inter the percent you know usage of, of of internet at home is at five percent uh, that low, and it's like now at a hundred percent or whatever. That's where we kind of are. And if you're paying attention, and if you're reading, and if you're following, and if you are doing the right things and knowing where to stay, what to stay away from, to not get caught up, you're going to be a part of this wave. And you're early are you already are. It's like we haven't even passed the stage of when they're laughing at us to when they started fighting us. We're seeing now a lot of crazy things, but has, it's very easy sometimes to get lost in the weeds, to forget exactly like what's happening underneath the hood of the crypto industry. So I'm really excited to uh, introduce you guys to my guest today, Billy Rennekamp. Billy, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories. You're going to be teaching us so much today. I'm so excited for it. Hell of an intro. Thank you. You, uh, you give everybody such a <laughs> inspiring spiel. Well, it, it it takes a lot for me to get excited in 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 our world in crypto land as I call it. It's it's I've I've seen so much, but we were doing the research for the show and I was really looking into the Clovers network. I want to read a quote and actually it's a perfect. I, I'll give a brief intro really quick to give everyone like what's going on. But you're you're on the 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 board of management at the Interchange Foundation, which kind of governs the. Uh, the whole Cosmos ecosystem. You're involved in, in grant giving there, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. You also launched, uh, under your, your R&D and design studio, Bin Studio, you launched the Clovers Network, and you're also a contributor to Cosmos, to Ethereum, to Gnosis, um, and everyone can go on your website, okw.me, and check out uh, how to follow you and get in touch. But I just want to read a quote. Uh, from an old Medium article that you did a few years ago when you were launching the Clovers Network. And it's this is the type of shit that gets me excited. And this is like why I, why I got into Bitcoin 11 years ago and why I'm still here today. It's the experimentation of, of our whole socioeconomic world that we live in. So I'm going to read this quote. You said, if you'd like to participate in the Clovers economy, support the project, you can get involved. There is no ICO and no pre-mine. This is available via to the public via mechanic mentioned uh, earlier. And once the site is live, it's going to be accessible here. And you have the link up. Clover Network is an experiment. And uh, it's an experiment and an artwork. And this is an opportunity for you to help to support the stability of the in-game economy. So if I understood you correctly, you were and you are trying to build the whole economic system around uh blockchain technology around the co uh, Cosmos hub uh, within the kind of ecosystem that the IBC ecosystem, but really you were trying to create like a whole round of better experiment in your mind. What, what is that experiment that you were trying to solve here? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, art was kind of my gateway drug to crypto and um, I really love the way uh, Simon de la Rubier talks about it, sort of markets as art. So there is, um, you know, a history and, and, um, 
contemporary art with sort of conceptual works that really focused on like market mechanics or sort of like unveiling the power structures that exist in, in sort of the world and the art market itself uh, that I, I feel has been uh, uh, repurposed in some of the more interesting crypto art projects. But um, yeah, I just felt like I was approaching this project and I was like, hey, it would be really funny or cool if I was able to produce these things that I was interested in making as sculptures or paintings. But the source content, you know, was sort of like something that required a bunch of work from like people who maybe don't even know that they're contributing to this artwork. And, and I accidentally sort of like taught myself what Bitcoin was through this mechanism. You know, I was like, if people went on this site and they did this sort of like menial task finding or searching for these very specific types of things, and then if they found them, they get like paid a small fee. I can take those things and I can make sculptures out of them and I take them back into the gallery space. And that was sort of what, what started me in this. And it, I was like, oh my God, I just like invented a blockchain. You know, it was, it was a novel proof of work system. So instead of hashing numbers, it was solving these pictographic sort of puzzles. And, um, and then I just sort of like realized it clicked what a blockchain was and sort of started going down that. And so this, this idea of sort of aligning incentives, creating systems that have like immersive behavior was always really core to like what I was focusing on and sort of my, my history of making art. And then as I sort of realized that blockchain is just like the ideal scenario, the ideal framework to sort of like expand upon these possibilities, I was like, oh my God, there's so much more to this than like making an interesting artwork out of it. And, and I actually sort of like switched from the art world to the tech world because you know I wasn't building these things in order to make an artwork anymore. I was building it because like I thought they were important because they enable sort of like fundamentally new interactions that sort of weren't possible before, you know, distributed systems. I mean, so you, so you go to Clover's, you go to Clover's dot, dot, is it Clover's dot network or Clover's dot? Yeah. It's Clover's dot network. And you start moving around your mouse and, and you call it a proof of search uh, mechanism, uh, consensus algorithm, uh, similar to proof of work. And I like it because it's like, it's a very complimentary uh, uh, consensus algo to proof of work. It's not like saying, Oh, I want to just, create uh something out of nothing here um and what exactly are users trying to solve i mean we're gonna get real conceptual right here and so i i also like would would uh point out this is one of the reasons that i always approach this as an artwork instead of like you know a mass market game or something because if i wanted to make it extremely accessible i think i probably could have approached it simpler but the actual hashing mechanism is a board game called othello um it's a popular board game i love uh, othello you know Othello, yeah. It's oh, also yeah, I used to play it in jail. There you go. There you go. Um, minute to learn, lifetime to master. Yeah, it's one of those. It's you got plenty of time in there to to master. Exactly. So that game, every time you make a move, you'll probably remember like the whole board switches, and it's really like difficult to predict what the board's going to look like a couple moves away. And the game tree is so large that like there's no computer, there's no group of computers that would ever be able to solve every possible game. It's even difficult to like play forward halfway through the game to the very end. And so it's it's um, computationally difficult to like predict what the very end state of the board looks like. Um, but it's very easy to verify that the, there's some properties at the end of the board. And so I was saying, I mean, this really came from a, a, a side class that I had. They were like, hey, create a smart AI that can play this game smart. And I was like, what if instead of trying to teach the AI to play it to win, I tried to teach the AI to play it so that at the very end of the game, the board was symmetrical. The black and white discs were visually symmetrical, sort of like an arbitrary end state. It didn't matter who won or lost, it was a new sort of uh, objective. And so um, these interactions you have on the website, you go and you start scrolling through and it just starts playing random games, similar to hashing, just 
plays a random move to the end of the game. So I realized that it's actually easier to just brute force trying to find these visually symmetrical end games than it was wow. to do something better. So similar to Bitcoin hashing, you know, it's like it's much harder to predict what you know the the Coinbase is going to be. Instead, you just brute force hash, try and million of them, like God, kill them all, like God sort them out kind of thing. Um, and the same thing is happening with Clovers. It's a proof of work, but you're trying to create this this icon, this black and white and green visual icon that is symmetrical. So when you're scrolling through, the whole computer is mining and hashing, and you're sort of like going to get this giant explosion from the side if you accidentally stumble upon one. Um, but at the same time, there's a second game where you're like you start sort of uh, seeing shapes in these, you're like, all right, this one isn't symmetrical. I can't get the like $5 reward that the protocol gives me, but because it's symmetrical, maybe I'm willing to pay $5 and put it on the market and try to sell it for $10 as like kind of a visual piece of work. You know, you bring curation, human identification. It's kind of like CAPTCHA. And then you're also being part of a community showing your participation in, in what do you call them? In, in the clovers that, that, wow, I'm, I'm blown away because I didn't know that Othello which is a game that m- millions of people play. It's been around for centuries. Is the same is the same thing as human hashing. It's really. I mean, it was serendipitous for me because yeah, it was just like I came to Bitcoin through this. You know, I came to blockchain through this. It was like a ha- aha moment of like uh, what it means to have a proof of work game and, and an incentive game. I wonder if there are anything else like like this in the in the world. So you have. Can you explain like the relationship between prime numbers? Uh, brute forcing, hashing, like what's the relationship between Bitcoin mining that actually makes it possible to, like you said, computationally difficult? What does that term actually mean? Because our whole, uh, like this, 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 you know, encrypted podcast that we're doing and bank security and passwords to, to Instagram, it's all based on the fact that no one can easily get into, into those systems or into our accounts. That's why we're even willing to put everything up on this thing called the internet. What's the relationship between all of that and playing Othello? If we're talking about like proof of work things, I think at the core or the, the commonality thing is actually anti-spam. You know, it's, it's, it's creating a system that somebody wouldn't be able to just like automate and have control over. You know, emails are not anti-spam resistant. There's no sort of like work that goes into having an identity if you associate an identity with an email address you know that's not a real identity oh, they call it like a sybil attack or something exactly exactly and so these are all sort of different rate limiting anti-spam mechanisms but really at the core of it it's this idea of scarcity and what really felt like an artistic part of me is this idea of creating aura you know if you look at like ready-mades you know the uh duchamp toilet or like you know the, the bicycle wheel that's on a on a stool it's like ready-mades are just like mass manufactured objects that an artist has like put into a place and sort of like given an aura to say, this is rare. This is unique. There's something about this that is now more special than the, like the fact that it came from the hardware store, you know, that they've imbued it with a story. They put it in a museum, put it on a pedestal that made an aura around something, made it, made it rare or unique. And this is like a way to like automatically add auras to something, you know, you know, that there was work that went into it. It's like impossible to just run of the mill, find a, a Coinbase hash. How is the experiment going? Well, it was amazing. So I started working in Cosmos sort of in parallel to this project. I mean, I began as an artwork. It was like, cool, I finished this as part of a hackathon, started going to conferences and hackathons to share it, start learning more about it. Uh, I wanted my audience to be able to like cash in and out of their tokens, you know, even though it was like a small niche project, I'm not going to get listed on exchanges. So I started going into the world of automatic market makers, bonding curves, what it means to like have a liquid token, even though it's a very small supply, 
huge body of learning. We went and saw, you know, Uniswap, all of DeFi are basically a version of this. And so I was oh, yeah. really early into learning and contributing some of the what stuff. What did you learn? It can take a step back and, and kind of what what are these things that you needed to learn for what purpose? Well, I knew that I would never like get this weird niche project on an exchange, you know what I mean? But I still wanted to have a liquid token because the whole point is that there's an economic incentive to do this thing. I pay you in the inflationary token, but if you can't cash it out to something that you consider, you know, closer to fiat, Bitcoin or Ether or something like that, then it's just another shitcoin, right? And so um, Simon De La Rubier was doing a lot of work on uh, what were called bonding curves at that time. It's basically a smart contract who will act as a market maker. You know, they do buys and they do sells. The smart contract itself keeps a bunch of money on hand in order to do that. So they always know that there's enough money to pay out for all the tokens that are currently in existence in that moment. So I built an early one of those and they came with like problems with front running, uh, as you've seen in like Flashbots and MEV yeah. across the DeFi space. And so I built the first batch bonding curve, which uh, was used by Gnosis Protocol for one of their early exchanges. It was one of the stints that I did with that company where it's a uh, front run existence because it takes batches of orders, puts them together. So there's no sort of uh, advantage to being before or after somebody else. How did it lead? Like, where, where, where are you now? Well, after that, uh, I got really involved. Well, in parallel, I got really involved with the NFT community because Clover's is an NFT. It was one of the very first NFTs. You know, the first version of it was built in 2017 before there was even a standard. I called them unique digital assets. Uh, I had just finished the prototype when I went to uh, ETH Waterloo when CryptoKitties launched. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. It was so exciting when I was building it because CryptoPunks came out in the middle of me building it and CryptoKitties. And I was like, I knew it. People want tokens that are like individual IDs. This is not crazy. People are paying crazy money for this. Really validating. I mean, so where, but what's the, where did you see the the future of this? Do you think that the, the art, the art is like the cover of the book and what's inside is different? Do you see proof of search or more of these type of, I, I don't like to call them games, but potential research or potential uh, economies or, you know, you can, you can contribute the same way how you can contribute to running a ledger system on Bitcoin, that's what miners are doing. You can have all type of, of decentralized uh, computation that now could be uh, incentivized economically. Is that kind of where you're going with this? I mean, I, I was really thinking like, okay, say I go back to the gallery world with like some sculptures that came out of this. The work is not interesting unless I created like a self-sufficient economy of completely like independent third parties who are participating, making this like a churn, making activity sort of like moving itself independently of the fact that like, they're not doing this for the art world. You know what I mean? If I can create that, then I can extract things that are actually interesting to show as sort of sculptures and sort of you know, demonstrate the, the sum is greater than all the parts. You're talking about like a mechanical Turk that can do smart things. So like a decentralized army of dumb computing power, which traditionally could only really do like dumb things pre-Bitcoin, you couldn't really incentivize computational power or people sitting behind their computer. I mean, like, remember back in the day, it's like, oh, you watch this ad, you get paid a few cents or whatever. And then by the time the PayPal took their fees, it was nothing. And then proof of work was really the first time you could invest in supply chains and building out uh, like, like application-specific integrated circuit machines. And then there was like that Cancer Research Institute that allowed you to like sit behind yes. the computer and, and earn, I forgot what they called it, uh, help with some cancer research because DNA sequen uh, sequencing is very similar. And this is kind of what I'm getting at. DNA sequencing, proof of work 
hashing, uh, uh, how flowers work, mathematics, computer encryption. It's all based on fourth grade math, what we learned prime numbers. It's all based on prime numbering. It's like, I wish I went back to that day in school and, and when we're learning how prime numbers work and why they're important. Someone said, Charlie, this is literally the most important math lesson you'll ever take. Funny, talking about the uh, Canthia research one, I remember back in like 2007, there were these artists named H3D who had these giant sculptures that were like water fountains that were being sold. And they each had a tiny little raspberry pie on the back that was doing this cancer research. And so it was this, you know, overblown metaphor for like trying really hard, spending a lot of money on the smallest little amount of work. But it was, you know, a very early sort of uh, uh, piece of work that, that played with these ideas, you know, distributing the work, having a system that sort of like represents something else inside of the artwork. But yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, the goal inside of this is it's world building. You know, it's it's create something that is self-sustained and keeps going. Ian Chang is an artist who works with a lot of world building, like, simulation systems that actually just run forever, you know, make a simple enough world and let it go. Conway's Game of Life, this really cool NFT project that simulated Conway's Game of Life and made proof of work inside of that. Oh yeah, that's so cool. Fertile ground, fertile ground. I want to I wanna switch uh, uh, switch a little bit here and, and kind of jump to Cosmos. We've covered Cosmos, uh, the inter-blockchain protocol, the, the whole ecosystem. We've covered it since the Tendermint days. We've covered it for years, actually. We've had many uh, folks like yourself, brilliant people on the show. We've had projects uh, within the Cosmos network uh, uh, on the show that have been very successful. What's interesting about Cosmos is that where all other blockchains kind of build out interoperability and APIs, if they do, and what that means is their connection to other projects or other blockchains in their ecosystem or, or externally, it's always like something that's looked at. Yeah, it's it's important, but it's not vital. Whereas the Cosmos Network talks about how interoperability is vital. In fact, without it, the whole experiment that is blockchain fails. Tell me more about this and how is that going, that experiment? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it was funny. So I started dabbling into Cosmos back in uh, 2017 already. I did a hackathon and I started doing front-end development part-time in 2018. You know, I was really still fully in, in Ethereum world working on Clovers. It wasn't until 2019 when I launched Clovers, went to mainnet, number one gas guzzler on Ethereum for like a week, and then immediately the gas prices surged and the whole yeah. sort of economy broke down. That I was switched full-time to Cosmos because I was like, actually, Cosmos launched earlier this year with the Cosmos SDK. You know, when I first started for them, they were they were solving a problem that didn't exist. They're looking so far in the future for this, like, this is going to be awful when all these blockchains launch and they're not going to be able to talk to each other. They're not going to be able to scale. We should like fundamentals, make fundamentals that like are going to make sure that that problem is solved from the beginning. And when I started working, it's just like, what are you guys doing? It's so far. I couldn't understand. By the time 2019 rolled around, it clicked where it's like, oh, I ran into scaling limits on Ethereum. If I were to launch something like Clovers again, I would do it application specific interoperable because that's like the smart way fundamentals that's going to work for the whole time. So you see all these projects today who are basically retrofitting their blockchains with bridges and interoperability. They break. They Six hundred million dollars just stolen from from Ronin Network just yesterday. They're band aids. And the beautiful thing about Cosmos is that they thought about these problems a long time ago, and they built and designed specifically to solve them from the ground up. They're not band aid solutions. And so we've seen that happen now. IBC launched last year. We already have about forty five chains with it enabled. $65 billion in market cap with the with, with IBC alone. Application-specific blockchains, you know, Terra, Luna, Binance, 
um, crypto.com. These are all Cosmos SDK application specific blockchains. Cumulatively, the $150 billion market cap. You know, third. How do I see cap. which blockchains are part of our, our members of the SDK? What do you call Go them? Cosmos.network slash ecosystem slash tokens. So these are these are specific blockchains that at launch what did they have to what do they do differently to be part of the because you're looking at binance chain or smart chain terra uh crypto.com thor, thor chain i mean what's the relationship now oasis network anchor protocol secret kava which was one of our sponsors for a while great company um and we actually like one of the reasons that we covered Cosmos was because of Kava. Um, what Akash Network, Mirror Protocol. Oh my God! Yeah. What's so? What's the relationship between all of these, all of these protocols? So they all build with uh, Cosmos SDK and Tendermint, which is a proof of stake software development kit. We like to think of it as like Ruby on Rails for building blockchains. So instead of deploying your app to a virtual machine like the EVM on Ethereum, where you have to share all the resources with all the other apps that are there, you have to use a blockchain that has features that are supposed to accommodate every variety of app. We're like, no, 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 no. Each application is gonna have its own needs. It's gonna need to have, you know, the same way the internet, you don't build everything in um, PHP, you don't build everything in Ruby, you don't build everything in C+. Different applications have different needs. They should be expressed by like, how much memory does their server need? You know, how many, frames per second, you know, does their, their transactions need to come through? It's like uh, application specific allows your blockchain to do just what it needs to do. And if you look at even like the security of Ethereum, you know what I mean? Like I deployed Clover's network. It's a toy. It doesn't need $300 billion market cap or whatever uh, uh, Ethereum is as like its security measure. So like, why can't I have a cheaper blockchain that sort of security matches the needs for my application? You know, not to like, downplay the need for security or anything like that, but there should be a match of like needs and wants. You know what I mean? And you see all these applications which deploy to Ethereum that, that break because they're just not important enough to like make it into the way Ethereum works. So Aragon, they made the Berlin hard fork upgrade, changed the way gas was calculated. All of their apps just broke because they didn't have a big enough voice because that blockchain isn't built just for them. And so we're all about application-specific blockchains because then your blockchain does what it wants to do. So all these blockchains have their own. What so? What's the relationship between Atom and all of these other blockchains? Because they all have their own tokens. Exactly. So Atom is the first. Atom is the Cosmos hub. We are uh, the group which funds and develops all of the technology that all these projects work. So we always work on what's the most valuable use of our time. And for a while, the most valuable use of our time was to give away free technology and not to do vendor lock-in, not to do token lock-in, not to make people pay us an Atom or anything like that our vision is much larger. It's an internet of blockchains is how you scale and make blockchains accessible to the mass audience. Um, and we've succeeded in that. You know, like I said, if you look at this list, we've had product market fit. People want these tools. People use these tools. They're valuable. And so along that path, uh, we sort of had this long-term vision of what an internet of blockchains would look like. And the sort of first sort of concept for the Atom as a hub is that for every single one of these blockchains to connect directly to each other, you'd have an exponential number of connections. So the internet isn't every computer directly connected to every computer. They're connected to these hubs, similar to an airport. You know, not every single city has a direct flight to every city. You have flights to these hubs, and those yeah. hubs directly more efficient for the actual transport. 
So the Cosmos Hub is an infrastructure level blockchain. It's basically business to business. It makes transporting these data packets between blockchains simpler. It simplifies the topography. Um, today, because we're still in the number ah. of like... Is that I a see moment? No, I see, what, I see what it is now. So essentially, because the infrastructure is built from the ground up, right, for all these blockchains, so they, it's like, okay, it's like new planets launching. And that's literally now why the, the planetary uh, analogy <laughs> works. It's like if all these new planets launching that are going to be vastly very different, do very different things, hell, different languages, but at least they're all, they all come from the same place. And so there's a relationship between them from the get-go. And you guys maintain the infrastructure that allows people to transfer in a decentralized way, whether it's assets and information from one chain to another without the need of these like bridges or whatever, because you maintain them from the ground up. Is that fair? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's so the brilliant. Are sovereign. And even, you know, so we have the SDK to build application specific blockchains, but it doesn't stop there. You could build a blockchain in whatever language you want. Substrate is a popular framework. You know, there's uh, all the other EVM chains that could work. What's important is that the protocol to talk to each other is IBC. That like, you'll, you'll talk to Cosmos people and it's really fun to be in this ecosystem because we want all these other blockchains to succeed. There's no sort of like maximalism. We like collaborate across team lines. You know, we're excited when you do this new feature because we want each blockchain to have its place in the world. That makes, you know, for more apps for people to use, more successful use cases, more exciting sort of developments. Uh, so there's none of this sort of like token maximalism, but there is maximalism on IBC, which is the, the language for these blockchains to talk to each other. All right, what is up, everyone? I wanted to give an extra special shout out to my longtime sponsor, Paraswap. If you're not using Paraswap and you're using any other type of decentralized aggregator or any other application or protocol to do any of your crypto land trading, your DeFi, your NFTs, anything, you got to be using Paraswap, and they've been a sponsor of this show for over a year, and I use them all of the time. First of all, they're integrated with Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, Avalanche, and Phantom. Users can stake, they can trade, earn gas refunds across all of their swaps on top of their API, so you could be earning different type of yields. Paraswap does it all for you within their open source, decentralized smart contracts, and Honestly, they've been around for so long. They're a leading DeFi aggregator. They, they unite the liquidity of all decentralized exchanges and lending protocols into one comprehensive and secure interface and APIs that are all public and open source. They've been great. Even the simple thing of like going from Ethereum to USDC to wrapped Bitcoin, which I want to do all the time. So then stake my wrapped Bitcoin for some yield. You could do it all in one transaction with Paraswap. Thank you guys for being awesome, and I'll talk to you all soon. One of the biggest news lately is, and actually I wasn't even planning on being able to ask you stuff like this, but I'm really excited, is the, the Terra USD algorithmic, I still can't pronounce that freaking word, <laughs> stablecoin. Uh, English isn't my first language for those who are saying, Charlie, you're a podcaster, learn, learn how to speak fucking English. No, believe me alone. But so, so, so Terra has raised over a billion dollars to, to buy Bitcoin and to uh, back their UST stablecoin with a portion of Bitcoin and also with a portion of, of Luna. And there's a relationship there. And, and I'm really excited about this. And I really, I think we've been talking about it for a long time 
this is what the relationship between Bitcoin and crypto land will be. Because crypto land, even in, in, in the Cosmos network, you have so many vast different types of utility and uses, but Bitcoin's utility and use is sound money that's almost like you can't penetrate. It's, it just is what it is, but you can build technologies around it. So what they're doing is I'm really, really excited about it. And I think there's a lot of projects that are going to do very similar things and have a relationship between this. But how does the technology work? And this is a question that I really want to know. Are, is, is the Bitcoin going to be locked up in some sort of contract? Are you able to speak to any of this? Yeah, so we talked about like why do bridges even exist if we have something like IBC, which makes it possible for blockchains to trustlessly communicate with each other. And in order for IBC to work, you need a couple features. And you know, when we're designing it from scratch, of course, all of our blockchains have those features from the get-go. Features are basically um, efficient light clients. So that's like the mechanism that each blockchain will cryptographically prove that this message came from the other blockchain. And in order for Bitcoin, for example, to have that, they would need to uh, have a light client inside the Bitcoin state machine itself. And I think we all know how difficult it is to sort of like yeah. ask for things to get added to Bitcoin. So rather than try to go through all that rigmarole, it's much easier to just introduce a bridge. And a bridge is any sort of variety of these mechanisms where there's a single person, a group of people, a massive sort of uh, group of people that, that all sort of play a role in usually locking up Bitcoin on one side and then printing a token that's redeemable for that Bitcoin the other way around. And, you know, I think you could go for an entire podcast on all the different types of bridges that exist. But once Bitcoin's been bridged to a network like Terra, from there, it can go over IBC. So it can have access to all of the other Cosmos chains that are connected with IBC in a much more secure manner. They can still get back to Bitcoin via that original bridge, but you know, once they've made that first hard step, everything else is easy. What's that Terra bridge look like, though? Like because we've seen bridges break, uh, and there's hacks and things like that. I guess because those are external applications, then that's one thing. And and Terra as its own blockchain gets audited, and there are a lot more eyeballs on it. But I want to get I want to get more into that because as a as a Bitcoiner myself, first. Uh, there's a there's a trillion dollars out there that wants to utilize their Bitcoin f- to support crypto land, right? They want to do things with their Bitcoin, but we're very reluctant because we want the same type of security that we have where it sits on top of the Bitcoin network. So I want, and there are a lot of plays out there where you can do this. I want to understand: Will Terra allow like anyone to participate, or will this be their own their thing only? I haven't looked at the way they're doing it, to be honest. Um, I've worked quite a bit with uh, bridges that uh, link to Ethereum. And so I'm pretty familiar with the options there. But to be honest, I don't know exactly which configuration Terra is using. But when it comes to bridges, I mean, something I like to think about is, you know, we have all these stable coins out there, right? There's USDC, there's UST, there's USDT, there's DAI. All of these are bridges from the meat space to the crypto space. And those bridges all have different security assumptions. And the stable token that's represented, they have slightly different values. You know, they're all close to a dollar, but they're slightly off. And the reason that is, is because it's inconvenient to convert it back to fiat or it's untrustworthy to some degree. You know, like what are the chances that the algorithmic mechanism of DAI or Terra is going to break down? What are the chances that uh, Tether actually has all the money inside of a bank account? You know, these are sort of priced. It's risk. It's all risk. Yeah, exactly. 
And so every bridge, you know, should have those priced in. So a Bitcoin that's been bridged should not be valued exactly the same to a Bitcoin, which is native on the network, because there's a new trust assumption in there. You know, no matter how sort of high integrity it is, it's still slightly worse. It's a little bit like I'm willing to, you know, um, I don't know, eat a penny if you pay me a dollar cash in hand compared to like, oh, I have it. I'll send it over to you uh, from my bank later. You know what I mean? They're both a dollar. But that dollar cash in hand is slightly more valuable because I can actually reach out and grasp it where there's a chance I'll never follow up with you and get like that dollar from the bank or something like that. So it's like, you know, they, they should be priced differently and you might not see it in the, you know, when I'm swallowing a penny first. I don't know who's daring me to swallow. No, you, <laughs> no you're, you're right. You're right. It, it, they're not. And I'd love to see like, it would be great to see. And there still are like stable coin arbitrage because they are it, and as they get bigger there will be and they all present di different risk one of the reasons i like usdc is because there's still a lot of risk there but it's the same risk in my view as keeping money at your local bank so if the bank goes down and usdc goes down it's pretty much the same type of bankruptcy or fdic related process where i would i would if I was holding like a million dollars in USDT uh, and someone offered me like to buy it at a discount, I would probably take it because there's more risk in my view, holding USDT over, over holding USDC. But because there's more risk in that, there's also more rewards to be made uh, because exactly. the, the, the yields are differently. So same thing with things like UST and some of the other ones that are out there. Um, it's really cool. And the benefits of some yeah. of those risks, you know, are huge. The fact that you can now like spend fiat inside of a crypto application is worth the risk, you know, compared to like holding that as a fiat in your hand or in your bank, similar to Bitcoin, having Bitcoin accessible to these DeFi primitives, having it on the internet of blockchains enabled by IBC, even though there's a slight degree of risk attached via the bridge, it's worth that risk. It's probably priced in and it's a lot worth it. You know, it's still something that you'd want to deal with. There's a lot of really cool things that that are kind of coming out of this. Um, wait, before I get to that, um, to, so you're the you're the grant coordinator. A lot of people don't really understand that this is actually how pretty much most projects in Cryptoland start is through uh, uh, getting grants. In fact, some of the earliest bitcoins and some of the earliest blockchains are launched through this way. Uh, what's that process like? Um, it's interesting. So. I was working primarily in the funding department of the ICF for like the last two years. For the last six months, I really transitioned to being the product lead on the Cosmos Hub itself. And the reason that is, is because my work inside of the funding is not only just like grants, hey, I'm interested in trying something out, I'm interested in trying something out, but all of the actual core development happens across, you know, anywhere, depending on what you call classify as core, three to 20 different teams. And those teams are funded by the foundation. And so that is a lot of like the actual product direction for the Cosmos ecosystem. Who's working on the most important thing? You're working on that part. You're working on that part. You're working on that part. So tons of organization uh, strategy and, you know, just working with all of the brightest and, and, and you know, boldest across our ecosystem are actually like doing the crazy stuff. What do you still need? Like what, what oh my can, can my folks come out and, and build and, and apply for a grant and join kind of this whole, this whole world, because I mean, these are the jobs of the future. It's not like Absolutely. you have to do this while you're in college or while you're, you know, doing something else, this, these type of things, this is the future. 
engineers, engineers, and engineers. So on April 14th, we're launching the, um, I think it's called the Interchain Academy. And this is like a three-month course that you take. And at the end of it, you're basically guaranteed a job inside of one of the core organizations. So it's uh, been built out over the last six months. So the course itself is online and free and anybody can take it. But if you do the three-month system, you basically apply to get in it, you know, show that you at least aren't going to waste our time. We will train you over that three period and find a job for you at the end of it. So I think our first cohort is going to be something like 200 devs, but we're trying to do something like 5,000 devs over the next two wow. years. Do you have to be a developer already? Um, not necessarily. I mean, if you learn fast on the job, I'm a self-taught engineer. You know what I mean? So I feel like anything is possible when you put your mind to it. Um, but take a look at it, sign up. Of course, that's not the only sort of work that's available, but that is a really big endeavor coming up. There's all sorts of community work that needs. So we basically like hire directly out of our community. I want to take the course. You should. It's a fun well, course. Um, I, I mean, like my my engineering level is like, if you if you showed me like a few hundred lines of Python, I can explain to you what's going on here and and everything. But that's that's about it. So I have to spend some time in getting to a much bet much higher proficiency level before I can take it. It sounds like you know what that sounds like to me, which is also really in demand, is product owners, somebody who's working with the engineers who understands what the product's doing and can yeah. also you know read the code, be legible, be able to be like, okay, you should be working with this person on that, or we really need to ship this feature first, and this is how it's going to ship into that feature. There's so much opportunity for ownership. What is that role called? That's what I've been doing forever. Product owner. Product we call owner. It a product owner or a product lead. So that's like my job in the Cosmos Hub now. Uh, I'm really doing the sort of like help in the final step. So we still use a lot of external companies who build different features that go into the Cosmos Hub. The biggest one, most exciting one, interchain security. Everybody, this is going to be huge. This is Cosmos's approach to shared security. So this is a way for new blockchains to launch who don't need to have their own validator set. So when you looked at this list, all these new blockchains, they had to recruit node operators, basically yeah. miners. And those are the ones who actually produce the blocks. With interchain security, the Cosmos Hub, the oldest, strongest validator set out of any Cosmos chain, they will produce your blocks. All you have to do is write the application you want. So it's sort of the same experience as deploying ADAPT to Ethereum. You don't have to worry about securing your network. Cosmos Hub, which has you know one of the highest market cap security chains in the Cosmos ecosystem, will secure it for you. So you've removed the security. Yeah, that's so you've removed the security out of like when you launch a blockchain, you're you're really creating this whole do you do you envision um do you envision a future with different different like ecosystems or different uh universes or like will all blockchains join will there be one standard kind of how TCIP works today that the internet that we're using I wonder how it's going to end up Well I think the TCPIP we like to say that's the equivalent to IBC and that's what we're maximalists about IBC maximalists but when it comes to the actual blockchains, the security, the consensus, the types of tokens, we expect there to be thousands of different types, you know, even more, perhaps hundreds of thousands. Some people have said a million blockchains. We really do envision an internet of blockchains. This is so cool. And, and you guys are constantly uh, launching some new upgrades, um, a Theta upgrade uh, with some things like liquid staking, interchain accounts. Uh, is this what people are demanding, users of these blockchains? It is. I mean, it's tough in this industry because you have to do a balance where you yeah. have to like you, you there is feedback cycles, but because the 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 user base is so sort of emergent, if it was pure feedback cycles, you would only have DeFi, you know what I mean? Which is great. But like DeFi is 
degenerate gamblers at the end of the day. I mean, <laughs> I'm overplaying that, but like the feedback cycle is let's do more finance. Let's do more, you know, add more risk to reward possibilities. And, and that's been great because, you know, products need to have those sorts of feedback cycles. But when you're dealing with fundamental new tech, you know, people don't even know what's possible yet with these things. And so it's a lot of saying like, if we were to build this, it would be possible for a whole new category of applications that like, if those applications were to exist, people want to use them. And you have to balance that because a lot of that is, you know, living in the clouds and dreaming, but a lot of those things come true. I mean, look at where we are. I'm trying to think, I'm going back to like scarce art and it's like so cool. I know I jump all over the place and I'm just trying to think of like some of the ramifications of that. Um, but while I do, what's, what is liquid staking? So liquid staking is, um, you could call it like a DeFi primitive. In a proof of stake network, the, uh, the chain is secured by these validators, right? To be a validator, you have to have some stake locked up, some token. And if you do something bad, if you go downtime, if you try to do something malicious, your money gets burned. Now it's unfeasible for like, you know, all of the validators themselves to have enough stake to be included. And so you allow normal users to pick out which validator they think is gonna do a good job producing blocks. They delegate their stake to those validators and that increases their, their like ability to produce blocks. Um, now, when those tokens are locked up, they're bonded. And to unbond them, it takes like three weeks. And this is yeah. part of the security mechanism. So if there were an attack, you, know, you wouldn't be able to run off or hit the token because it takes you three weeks to unbond your tokens. And by that time, sort of things would have gotten settled, has some important properties for the way the consensus actually works. However, we're at sort of a war between decentralized and centralized exchanges. A centralized exchange holds your money. While they're holding it, they're not giving you the staking rewards, but they're getting the staking rewards. Now, some of these exchanges are starting to give users some of those rewards, but exchanges have the benefit of keeping some locked up and some liquid. So yeah. even though you're earning rewards with these tokens, you can still sell them immediately. You don't have to wait for this unbonding period in order to sell them. And if that's a better product offering than the real decentralized version where you actually custody your coins yourself, you delegate themselves and you earn your staking rewards yourself, you're going to be locked up at that three-week period. So you're going to eventually switch to centralized exchanges, which is bad for the network security. The money all gets centralized into a single party. And so we wanted to basically make it possible for the same thing to happen at a decentralized level. So you take your tokens, you delegate it to a validator, you earn your rewards, but you can convert them into what's called a staking voucher. And that's transferable. So while you're still earning rewards because they're locked up carrying the network, you have this kind of like coupon that you can move around and sell. And that becomes really exciting for different DeFi primitives. It's basically an interest-bearing um, financial instrument. You know, yeah. it is earning money moving around. But it could also it can also contribute to this like you could potentially launch like an insurer of last resort type of thing on top of the IBC. So like imagine. You know, imagine we're, we're, you're going to see further, you're going to see more attack vectors as we grow this thing out. So imagine if there was like in Florida, you have the private property insurance uh, industry, but if that were to collapse, you have what's called citizens property insurance, which is just taxpayer owned, which is just a short, uh, a, a, an easy answer for if like, if your property is insured by citizens, it comes from property taxes of the whole state of everyone. It's like everyone participates in this kind of insurance scheme for everyone else. That's the insurer of last resort. You could almost build this out. You can almost like insure an insurance DAO that 
insures, of course, they have to follow certain criteria and get audited and things like that, can insure all these different mechanisms. And then you can participate in that. And then that DAO gets participation in some of the rewards for the ones that insures like 1% of all the rewards, something like that. You could do some really cool stuff now between liquid staking and interchain accounts. I'm excited because I'm looking for a future of like, I want to do insurance for my house through a DAO without a centralized in a party. Yeah, we've seen insurance uh, begin to sort of become a thing in the DeFi space across different um, different ecosystems, for sure. One of the versions of, of insurance that I'm kind of most excited is, is actually the next phase of this interchain security. So I talked about interchain security where you use the Cosmos Hub validator set to launch your blockchain. So, you know, it's their token. But the next version of it allows that to go both ways. So if you have a blockchain that's got a $5 billion market cap, you know, it's as secure as two-thirds of that. If somebody bought up two-thirds of that $5 billion market cap, they could attack that network. That's sort of how you calculate how, how secure is that network. If you had two blockchains that each had $5 billion market caps, they can do interchain security towards each other. So That's that means it's the combination of both of them, both of those tokens. So it's now a $10 billion market cap for the security of each of these networks. If one of them gets fucked and goes down, the security just downgrades to the $5 billion. It's that one thing that's still up securing both of them. You know what I mean? So you've now sort of like done this insurance. And the way, the reason I call it insurance is because in order for this to work, each of these blockchains are paying each other on a per block basis, some of their inflation rewards in exchange for using their security. So like, hey, give me your $5 billion market cap and I'll start sending you, you know, whatever $1,000 per block or, you know, whatever my inflation is. You'll do the same thing to me. So you sort of create these cool alliances between blockchains too, where they're able to start you know, sharing from their rewards and also pooling their risk, exactly like the sort of insurance mechanism you talked about. It's so cool. There's some really, really cool things going on in, in the Cosmos world. And, and in, thank you so much for taking the time and, and telling us and teaching us and giving us some cool information. Um, you're looking for product owners, engineers, developers, and you have this course. How can, uh, how can my listeners get involved, follow the course, do the course, get a grant, potentially get a job? What's the next step for them? Cosmos.network has links for everything that's in there. Uh, Developers.cosmos.network will have all the information about um, the developers course. There's email signups on Cosmos.network. If you sort of checkbox whether you're interested in project updates or developer updates, you'll get specific emails on those, as well as the Cosmos Twitter is a great place. I have a Cosmos Hub Twitter handle, and I do... Saturday or Wednesday um, Twitter spaces. It's actually this afternoon. Oh, so cool. if you're interested in learning more, come there. I do it every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. in uh, European CET time. So that's like 5 p.m. UTC. That's noon in New York. That's 9 a.m. in California. It's just open discussion. I go with one of our big crypto influencers named CryptoCito. I have like topics up there, but at the end we have open questions. I'm there every week to talk about the Cosmos Hub and the Cosmos Network. That's so cool. Thanks for doing that. Billy Renekamp, thanks for thanks so much for coming on Untold Stories. And if you have a cool idea, also my email address is on untoldstories.com and I'll forward it over to Billy. Uh, thanks everyone. And I'll talk to you all again in a few days. Thank you so much for having me. Been a pleasure.